Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lexicon Valley is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. So you know how in some languages words can be masculine or feminine? What's going on there? Why is that? God, I'm not sure if I know why, but it's, what's interesting to me is why certain words are deemed masculine or feminine as opposed to why they have it at all, but it's a good question. Well, a bridge, for example, should that be masculine or feminine? It should be feminine because it's a beautiful structure. <laughs> okay, I'll buy that. <laughs> I never thought about it that carefully before, but I guess I think of things as sort of ethereal and beautiful as being feminine and sort of hard and you know, difficult as male, but that's probably terrible. <laughs> From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number eight, titled, When Nouns Grew Genitals, wherein we discuss the obvious overwhelming genderedness of silence. Hey, Mike. Hey there, Bob. How you doing? Splendid. Thank you. Yourself? I am fantastic. Good. Before we start, I want to thank our listeners for their very generous comments about the podcast, both at our email address, our Gmail address, and on iTunes. So thank you. We really appreciate your feedback. I'll read a single sentence from one iTunes review. Now, Bob, don't let this go to your head, okay? Quote, not a sloppily put together show. Wow. That's effusive. <laughs> verging, verging on fulsome. Not a sloppily put together show. Now, I have a couple of interpretations here. <laughs> One is that this person is damning us with faint praise. Yeah. But they gave us a five-star rating. No, I think they're praising us with faint praise, which, you know, strikes me as a bit unfair, but I'll take it. Well, I'm going to offer uh, another interpretation, which is that this person is very deliberately using what I think is a time-honored rhetorical device. If you've ever studied rhetoric, you might remember that litotes is a form of understatement in which you negate the opposite of what you're mm-hmm. intending to say, mm-hmm. right? So if you describe something as no small feat, or if you describe someone as no dummy, that's litotes. Or, you know, if in answer to the question, how are you, you say not bad, that's litotes. So I think not a sloppily put together show is in keeping with this long learned tradition of understated enthusiasm 
and praise. I like it. You know, I happen to use that figure of speech, if that's what it is, a lot in my writing. And you know where I learned it? Where? Made a big impression on me, and I you know, first encountered it maybe when I was eight years old. Uh, Peanuts, Charles Schultz, used it quite a bit. It would come out of the mouth of both Linus and Charlie Brown, especially Linus, before Schultz imploded as a writer and started adding all these uh, preposterous and unfunny characters in the mid-'70s. He substantially informed my writing. I learned many things from Charles Schultz. Yeah, how to pull a football out from under uh, somebody. <laughs> well, I think this person is actually challenging other Lexicon Valley listeners to you know, stealthily include some sort of rhetorical device in all future reviews on iTunes. So we'll, we'll see if that happens. And in fact, you know, there may be an episode in that very one, right? I mean, it's not uninteresting. That's true. But not this episode. For the next two, maybe three episodes, we're going to talk about language and gender. And really, we could spend, you know, a hundred episodes talking about that because it's so fracking fascinating. Whoa, 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 whoa. Language. That's a Battlestar Galactica reference, Bob. You wouldn't know because you don't like <laughs> no, science fiction. No, I certainly, certainly wouldn't know. I thought it was a, you know, a shale oil recovery reference that shows you <laughs> it's that how up to date I am in the popular culture. Well, you're lost, my friend. First, I think we should describe what we're talking about here. If you went to high school here in the U.S., you may have had a foreign language requirement, and you probably took Spanish or French, maybe German. I took four years of Latin in my public high school in New Jersey. All of those languages have what's called grammatical gender, something English does not have. Okay, you took four years of Latin. I took a little Spanish and a little German. In Spanish, it's like L is the masculine, la is the feminine for nouns, and uh, in German, der, das, die, and I, I forget which is which, to tell you the truth. Die is feminine, and uh, der is masculine, and das is, I guess, neuter. Hmm. I, I didn't realize that there were foreign language requirements in the 1800s. <laughs> <laughs> Frack you. Well, in a language with grammatical gender, all of the nouns belong to one of several categories, often one of just two or three categories, and when you use any given noun in a sentence, the other words around it, the adjectives that modify the noun, the articles and the pronouns that refer to the noun, sometimes even the verbs, they all have to change in some way, usually by changing their ending, in order to agree with the category of the noun. Now, many languages all over the world, across many different language groups, do this. Why? Why divide nouns at all? What advantage is there to having two categories or three categories? It just it's, sounds like make work. Or six or seven or more. You know, I asked several linguists exactly that question. Why do languages organize themselves like that? The answer I got from all of them was basically we don't really know. It may be that human cognition likes to sort of divide things up in a kind of compartmentalized way so that we can, when we're talking about them, be more specific in our language. You know, you know that the adjective that I'm using refers to that noun because they are matching in their endings. It's a way of building redundancy into the language, and it also allows us to break up the world into discrete categories. And if you think about it, any individual noun is essentially itself a category right? Chair, book. So 
nouns tend to exist as categories within categories. And in many of the grammatically gendered languages that Americans are most familiar with, like the ones that you took in school, Bob, those categories are called masculine and feminine and sometimes neuter. Why? I know you like to ask the questions around here, but seriously, why those labels? My first response is, duh. I mean, we live in a world where, you know, half of the universe is masculine and half of it is feminine. That's how we're put together. So it's utterly natural that nouns would be divided to correspond with biological reality. Those labels in particular, masculine, feminine, and neuter, we sort of have the Greeks to blame for those. We know that Aristotle, in his treatise on rhetoric, came up with a number of rules for using language correctly. And one of those rules was to observe Protagoras' classification of nouns into male, female, and inanimate. Protagoras was a Greek philosopher who took an interest in language and semantics at a time when the Greek language was still very much in flux. Now, there's a psychologist at Stanford University who studies grammatical gender. Her name is Lyra Boroditsky. And I asked her why Protagoras might have come up with those labels. He could have called the categories apples, oranges, and pears, or one, two, and three, but he didn't. It's true that when you look around you, most of what you see, most of the nouns are inanimate right? Walls, microphones, bridges, almost everything. But Boroditsky says that if you count the nouns that we use most often in conversation, that proportion gets flipped. Things that have a biological sex, things that are actually male or female, are hugely disproportionately represented in the set of things that we actually talk about. So most of the time that you're using a feminine article or a feminine pronoun or a feminine adjective ending, it's to refer to something that is actually biologically feminine. And so the fact that there's such a strong and coherent set of things that are referred to using these markers creates a really strong anchor that pulls in the rest of the stuff conceptually. Imagine Greek before these labels masculine and feminine even existed. You have words for mother and sister and father and brother and a whole host of others that refer to things that are actually gendered, as Boroditsky says. Those sorts of words dominate our conversation as high as 60 to 70 percent, Boroditsky told me, thereby reinforcing the idea that male-female is a useful way to divide up our world and, by extension, our language, and in particular, our nouns. But if you think about it, dividing everything up into masculine and feminine categories creates a kind of linguistic problem, right? Boroditsky said that these naturally gendered words create an anchor that pulls in the rest of the stuff conceptually. But it's one thing to say that mother is feminine and father is masculine. What about the rest of the stuff? How do you assign gender to a chair? or to abstract concepts like, you know, greed or passion. Well, Mike, I'd like to say that because a chair just has feminine traits and that passion is so obviously masculine. But, of course, none of that is true. Uh, It's almost never true. It all strikes me as being, you know, arbitrary in the extreme on the verge of sometimes being preposterous. 
Yeah, completely arbitrary. And, you know, the arbitrariness can be informed by our own personal biases, the way that we sort of think about things culturally and the characteristics that we ascribe to things. We see that even Protagoras had his biases. You know, we've talked about on this show that it can be almost impossible to tell the language what to do, right? You can't prescribe usage. Language tends to do what it wants. So interestingly, we see that Protagoras's own labeling system kind of got away from him a little bit. The Greek words for anger and helmet, for example, somehow acquired feminine endings. And <laughs> Aristotle writes that Protagoras thought that was wrong. You know, like, why, why did that happen? <laughs> Those are masculine things. Those words should be masculine, he thought. You just said to me the words for anger and helmet, for example. Where did you come up with those examples? <laughs> why, why were you moved to investigate helmet of all words? Those are the ones that Aristotle mentions. Oh, right. And, you know, Lyra Boroditsky points out that these gender assignments can be not merely capricious, but even flat-out arbitrary. For example, at some point, neither Russian nor German had a word for giraffe. Why would they need one? Right. Then the French go to Africa, they see giraffes, they come back with this fantastic new thing to talk about, and both German and Russian borrow the French word giraffe. Now, when it's borrowed into German, you're staying in the same alphabet system, and the word has, the French word has an E at the end, and German words that end with an E tend to be feminine. So the word becomes feminine in German. In Russian, you're going to a new alphabet system, and so you're just transliterating. The word giraffe in French ends with a consonant sound, and in Russian, things that end in a consonant sound are typically masculine. So it becomes masculine in Russian. And, you know, just to sort of further underscore how arbitrary this all is, in the late 1800s, Mark Twain traveled through Europe with a friend and wrote a nonfiction account of it in a book he called A Tramp Abroad, one of the appendices is titled The Awful German Language. And here is Twain's take. If only we had Hal Holbrook to do the dramatic reading. <laughs> but here's Twain's take on the sort of nonsensical workings of grammatical gender in German. Every noun has a gender, and there is no sense or system in the distribution. So the gender of each must be learned separately and by heart. In German, a tree is male, its buds are female, its leaves are neuter. Horses are sexless, dogs are male, cats are female, tomcats included, of course. A person's mouth, neck, bosom, elbows, fingers, nails, feet, and body are of the male sex. A person's nose, lips, shoulders, breast, hands, and toes are of the female sex. And his hair, ears, eyes, chin, legs, knees, heart, and conscience haven't any sex at all. So we see that the assigning of labels like masculine and feminine can be totally arbitrary. But what happens once those labels are already in place? You know, we see with Protagoras that thinking of anger or a helmet as somehow masculine made him want those words to be grammatically masculine. But does it work the other way around? That's the sort of question that is kind of at the heart of the research that Lyra Boroditsky does. As she puts it, does talking about inanimate objects as if they were masculine or feminine lead people to think of them as masculine or feminine? It's so perplexing. In Spanish, 
la mesa, the table. In German, der Tisch, the table. In German, it's masculine. In Spanish, it's feminine. And yet, if you compare a German and Spanish table side by side, they, you know, they look the same. And you have to look underneath, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Boroditsky is trying to figure out if Spanish people are inclined because language so informs them to think of tables in a feminine way and whether Germans tend to think of tables in a masculine way. Exactly. All right, let's take a brief pause and talk about our sponsor, audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet. They have 100,000 audiobooks that you can choose from and listen to on just about any device that you have. Audible, as we've mentioned in the past, has a special offer for Lexicon Valley listeners. If you sign up for a 30-day free trial membership, you get one free audiobook of your choice. You have to go to the special URL that they set up to do this. It's audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. And there are literally thousands and thousands of books to choose from. Something that I really recommend listening to as an audiobook, as opposed to reading it, is President Obama's Dreams from My Father. Uh, I listened to it as an audiobook several years ago, and it's just amazing the way he kind of captures the various voices of his relatives, his male relatives, his female relatives. It's an incredible story, and he tells it really well. If you sign up for a membership at audible.com, it includes a free subscription to either the New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. So give it a try. Please use our URL so Audible knows that you're a Lexicon Valley listener, audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. Okay. In 1959, a famous Russian linguist named Roman Jakobson wrote an essay about translation. In the essay, he makes a kind of passing remark, a, a sort of claim that 50 years later, Boroditsky took as a challenge. And the claim is when Russian painters started looking at depictions of sin that were done by German painters, they were confused because the Russians knew that sin was a man, and the Germans were often painting it as a woman. <laughs> and uh, of course, these are, you know, ideas that coincide with grammatical gender. And so Jakobsen just throws that out as an anecdotal example. He kind of just asserts it to be true. And so our question was, you know, if you measured this, if you actually went into a corpus of artworks and measured it, would that be true? Would there be this correspondence? And it turns out he was right. Boroditsky and a colleague of hers formulated the following research question. Does the grammatical gender of nouns in an artist's native language enable us to predict how those artists will personify things in their art. So how do you test this? ArtStore is an online database with hundreds of thousands of artworks. Boroditsky identified works by Italian, French, German, and Spanish artists, all grammatically gendered languages, from around 1200 AD up to today. Artworks that depicted a personification of an abstract entity. Things like justice, time, fame, peace, truth. Now, their sample size was about 800, and they found that 78% of the time, the gender in the artwork 
matched the grammatical gender of the word being personified in the artist's native language. In other words, if in your native language, death is feminine, you're far more likely to personify death as a woman. Here is Boroditsky. Of course, one worry that you have when you look at a corpus of artworks is that people's ideas of how you should portray something like death or something like love may not be entirely independent. They will have seen lots of portrayals of death and love before that may come from mythology. And so we wanted to make sure that the conclusion that we had also applied to things that didn't participate in those mythologies. So we looked at examples where there's only one example in the whole corpus, and it'd be something odd like geometry or necessity or silence. And what we find is that grammatical gender is just as predictive there as it is for the high-frequency cases. Incidentally, Bob, silence in the Romance languages that we're talking about here, Italian, French, and Spanish, is masculine. In German, depending on which word you use, it might be feminine or neuter. So I'm curious which of those best comports with the Bob Garfield gender-stereotyped view of the world. If you were inventing a language, a grammatically gendered language, what would silence be? Well, first of all, Mike, uh, I think uh, you owe me an apology because you're assuming that I have gender-based prejudices. In fact, I don't see race. I don't see gender. I don't even see height. Everybody, I just see people's uh, inner being. Are you blind? No, I'm simply lying. (laughs) 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 Uh, Unfortunately, like probably everybody else, I find it impossible (laughs) to separate sex from my worldview. So uh, a silence, I have never actually experienced feminine silence. So I'm going to have to say that it belongs to the category of sullen incommunicative males. Oh, I think you're on really thin ice here, Bob. Um, In fact, I see the ice cracking underneath uh, your feet. I'm sorry that my experience happens to correspond with gross and hateful stereotypes. But, you know, like George Clooney said in Up in the Air, I like stereotyping. It's faster. Okay, I want to emphasize as a coda that the word gender means, you know, kind or sort. It comes from genus. And grammatically gendered languages that we're most familiar with, as I've said, have two or three categories of nouns, and those categories overlap at least somewhat with natural gender, right? I mean, in Spanish, the word for wife is esposa. That word is feminine. The word for husband is esposo. That word is masculine. Those two words are in separate categories. But there are languages with noun categories for which none of that is true. You know, there's not just two or three categories, and they don't overlap with natural gender. For example, Kosa is a language native to South Africa. It has close to 15 noun categories, and in that language, the words for wife and husband are in the same category. So they're not genderized at all. No. 
And there's an Aboriginal language of Australia called gerbil. It's very famous among linguists because of how interesting it is. An Australian linguist, R.M.W. Dixon, many years ago, described the four noun categories of gerbil. For example, one category contains mostly non-flesh foods, as he put it. So all edible fruits and their plants are in that category, tubers, honey, wine. Another category contains the nouns for human males and for animals. A third category contains words for human females, water, things related to fire, and things related to fighting. Or, as the linguist George Lakoff famously summed it up, women, fire, and dangerous things. (laughs) I would comment, but I believe I'm probably in enough trouble already. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Now, it happens that most birds are in the category with human females, not the one with human males and the other animals. So that seems nonsensical and random, right? In the same way that the German categories of masculine, feminine, and neuter seemed random to Mark Twain. But when you learn more about the beliefs and the mythologies of gerbil speakers, it starts to make sense. So gerbil speakers believe that birds are the reincarnated spirits of dead human females. So they get grouped together. They believe that the moon and the sun are husband and wife. So the moon is in the category with men and the sun with women. There's a certain species of grub that is in the category with women and the sun. So why would that be? Shouldn't it be with animals? Because gerbil speakers think of the sting from that grub as feeling like a sunburn. So you see there's a system here that actually has some rhyme or reason, more so than masculine and feminine, which makes sense for things that are naturally gendered, but not for tables and chairs and ears and toes. So I I, got to blame... uh Pythagoras or protagonist or whatever his name is, he started this whole confusion. He, he did, in a sense. I mean, if only he had chosen different labels, then we wouldn't be kind of stuck with these series of conflations when we talk about grammatical gender versus natural gender and the way that some languages overlap partially with regard to those two, but not entirely. And I just want to read a short passage from George Lakoff's book, Women, Fire, and Dangerous Things. He writes, many readers, I suspect, will take the title of this book as suggesting that women, fire, and dangerous things have something in common, say that women are fiery and dangerous. Most feminists I've mentioned it to have loved the title for that reason, though some have hated it for the same reason. The inference is based on the common idea of what it means to be in the same category, that things are categorized together on the basis of what they have in common. So what Lakoff is essentially saying here is, is that we create these categories of nouns. So we impute to them common qualities. Exactly. And Boroditsky and her colleagues have devised ingenious lab experiments to sort of suss out just how true that is. And we'll talk about a couple of those lab experiments on the next episode. Now, before we go, Mike, in our last episode, we did not include Alexa Conundrum, leaving it for our listeners to either agitate for a new puzzle or to vote with their indifference. What did we hear or what did we not hear? Well, I think 
we got exactly one email asking us what happened to the Lexa conundrum. So I think we'll probably interpret that as having voted with their indifference. If listeners, you object to this uh, conclusion, why I suggest starting a viral video called Lexa Conundrum 2012. Uh, If you can get 100 million uh, views or so and foment a movement, we will uh, reconsider. Or, you know, if enough of you just write to us at SlateLexiconValley at gmail.com. That's SlateLexiconValley at gmail.com. You can also find past episodes of our show at Slate.com slash LexiconValley. Please subscribe to our feed in iTunes where you can leave a review and a rating. I want to thank Lyra Boroditsky and Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcast. Mike, before we say goodbye, can I just emphasize that we're just beginning to discuss gender and language, and this by no means is meant to represent our entire take on the subject, just kind of raising some of the issues here, right? That's right. And we will, like I said, continue it for at least one more episode, probably two more. All right. Well, now I want to go do something else. Are we done here? We're done. Later, Gator. Later, Gator.